0: As you remain standing in body or spirit, um, and we come together for the Shema, which uh, Jesus and the disciples likely would have engaged in in the morning, the evening, and also when they came before uh, the Scripture. Before we do that, though, I want to introduce our special guest uh, speaker this morning, Bishop Robert Stasey. Uh, I've known Bishop Stasey for uh, many, many years. I know him to be um, an effective pastor, a brilliant writer and an outstanding bishop. Uh, one of the things that interests me um, is that he wrote a best-selling book years ago that we used in Sunday school classes at my church at that time. You may have also used it here. Uh, and we ended up as, uh, at this church uh, purchasing that book and distributing it in the annual conference to the gal- delegates. It's a, uh, a wonderful book about five practices of fruitful congregation. Uh, the bishop could have just rested on that. But uh, in recent uh, years, uh, noticing uh, change in the movement of the Holy Spirit and, uh, and God uh, working in the, in the world, in the culture, Bishop rewrote an already best-selling book uh, so that we might uh, be able to uh, look at it and look at our world with fresh eyes. And that tells me a bit about him. He is uh, ever-learning ever-growing and ever-serving, and it's my honor to serve under him and to have him uh, speak with you today. And uh, as we do so, would you follow after me in Hebrew? We'll join together in English. Shema Israel. Adonai Eloheinu. Adonai Ahad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Would you remain standing, please?
1: Let us listen now for the word of the Lord from the 15th chapter of the Gospel of Luke, the first seven verses. Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to Jesus, and the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling and saying, this fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. So Jesus told them this parable. Which one of you having a hundred sheep and losing one of them does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one that's lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders and rejoices. And when he comes uh, home, he calls together his friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So welcome to Alamo Heights United Methodist Church. Whether this is the first time you've ever been in this space or whether you are a longtime member, we are delighted you're here. And it's our hope and prayer that something in the Scripture read and the Word proclaimed through the music or the prayers or the fellowship speaks a word that you find helpful in your faith journey. We're delighted that you're here. And I want to thank David for the invitation to be with you. Uh, as David has said, I've, I've heard, uh, my first memories of David was when I was 26 years old and I was assigned to a church in Harlingen, Texas, and he was serving about 30 miles down the road in Los Fresnos, Texas. And, uh, and that's where we first started our Friendship. Uh, it 's been one of mutual respect. I have learned so much from him he 's been kind of a, a mentor from afar sometimes as also uh, involved in many things together and i uh, and I just give god thank, uh, thanks for his ministry and witness He, is, um, he has been not just a, a, a great pastor and leader of uh, Alamo Heights United Methodist Church and other United Methodist churches, uh, but also a, uh, a teacher for uh, other pastors and um, and so uh, you know, I've been bishop in this area now for about two and a half years, and it was uh, just this last fall that uh, David and I had lunch uh, a time or two and breakfast, and and he started expressing his uh, desire after uh, lots of conversation with Pam of of wanting a different responsibility, and uh, and I just have to say that uh, from that moment on, I've been in prayer and. Uh, discernment about, uh, about future leadership for Alamo Heights United Methodist Church, and if you want to learn a little bit more about how those processes work, I'm going to be at that 5 o'clock uh, meeting this afternoon to describe how the assignment processes for pastors work in the United Methodist Church. But, uh, but David, I give God thanks for your ministry, and thank you for all that you've done, all that you've done for Alamo Heights United Methodist Church and for the kingdom of God. God bless you. So the parable I read is one of my, uh, one of my favorites. And uh, here's what's going on. Um, Jesus is eating with those outsiders, those tax collectors and sinners. And, and the religious people, the insiders, start, uh, start complaining to him, why are you spending all your time on those people out there instead of focusing on us in here? And so he tells them this parable about uh, a shepherd who has a uh, hundred sheep and one of them wanders off. And he says, which of you would not leave the 99 and go after the one that's lost. And, uh, and then he says to these scribes and Pharisees who are grumbling, I tell you there's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. I grew up in uh, West Texas, uh, a part of the state that calls itself uh, the wool and mohair capital of the world. Um, I don't know what New Zealand or, uh, uh, you know, Scotland think about that, but, uh, but in uh, Sonora and Del Rio and those areas, that's what we considered ourselves, because it, that part of the state is just all desert terrain. It's uh, small shrubs, and it just uh, you know, goes on forever, and, and you can't grow anything there, and so they raise sheep and goats. And through that same part of the country, over the millennia, the, the, the rivers, the Pecos River, the Rio Grande, have cut these great canyons that uh, rise above those rivers. And as a young person, I'd go with my dad canoeing along those rivers. And every once in a while, as we were on one of those, we'd see this cliff that just rose straight up, just sheer wall uh, that would rise above the river. And maybe 200 feet from the bottom, 50 feet from the top, there'd be a single sheep or goat uh, balanced on a few square inches of rock and stretching out its neck to get something to eat. And you just had to wonder, what in the world was this sheep thinking about? <laughs> uh, when it got up that morning, did it say, gee, I think what I'm going to do is go out to a place so precarious that, there's, that, that I won't even know how to get myself back. You know. Uh, well, it's that sheep on the face of that cliff that always comes to mind when I, when I hear this parable. Back... Um, Back in an earlier generation, there was a writer of biblical commentaries, George Arthur Buttrick, and he, and he writes one time uh, this little story, it's set in kind of, you know, city guy, farmer thing, and, um, and, and, and it's helped us to understand this parable, and, and he has the, uh, the farmer loses one of his sheep, and, and the city guy says, well, how do they get lost like that? And the farmer answers, well, they just nibbled themselves lost. They put their heads down, they go from one little green tuft of grass to another until they come to a hole in the fence, they stick their heads through uh, looking for more grass and, and, and then they're gone. I love that description, they just nibble themselves lost. And I would suggest that, um, that that's a pretty poignant description of our human condition, that uh, That we are like that lost sheep and we have a propensity to nibble ourselves lost and end up in places as precarious as that sheep on the face of that wall even though we never intended it or desired for that to happen. We just nibble ourselves uh, lost and this describes how we get disconnected from our own best selves and what God created us to be. This describes how we grow distant from our families and disconnected from them and disconnected from the community of faith, the church, uh, and even disconnected from God himself. We don't intend to do it, but we just nibble ourselves lost. This describes how we get disconnected from our own best selves and what God created us to be. I know that this is an oversimplification, but I think you'll get the point. No one wakes up at age 45 or 55 and says to his or her spouse, Honey, I've been thinking about it, and I've decided to become an alcoholic. And so tomorrow... After work, I'm going to come home and drink until my mind is pickled, and I'm going to do that night after night after night until nobody even recognizes me, and I hardly recognize anybody around, and I'm going to do that till I start sleeping over and lose my job and we lose the house. What do you think of my plan? Right? It doesn't work that way. It happens in small little steps, nibbling our way lost, a phase of. Who knows, maybe in younger years to be cool, fit in like everybody else, but if not careful, it evolves to drinking a little more to handle the stresses of family and work. And if not careful, it can evolve to drinking to escape, to isolate, to deaden. And suddenly someone ends up where they never imagined they would find themselves, like that sheep on the face of the cliff. They didn't intend to just nibble ourselves lost this describes how we get disconnected from our family sometimes that you know a little more time at the golf course here than at the home there a little more time uh at, at uh you know in, involved in our own interests rather than the interest of our families a little more time uh given to our work life than to attention to our spouse or or children and if we're not careful one day we drive to our home address and walk in the door and there are strangers living in our house we hardly recognize them. We ask, well, how did we become so estranged? We didn't intend to do it, right? We just get, we just nibble ourselves lost. This describes how we get disconnected from the community of faith, the body of Christ, the church. Very few people who have an active pattern of personal devotion and and uh, worship and uh, and, and uh, Bible study, and being connected to the community of faith, very few people who have a, a pattern of that suddenly wake up one day and say, I'm no longer going to be a part of the body of Christ. I'm no longer going to do that. I'm, I'm, I'm out of here. What actually happens uh, is, is someone is gone a couple of weeks on vacation. And then they come back and they're sick for a couple of weeks. and Then, uh, and then there's out-of-town relatives that are visiting them and of course, everybody knows that if you have out-of-town relatives, you can't come to church. I've never understood that one, David, but it seems to be the pattern. And, um, and, and, and then, you know, another week, and there's the big game, and you know, can't miss that. And so, and what happens is a pattern of participation and involvement in the church and in the community of faith is suddenly broken by about six or eight weeks. Lyle Schaller, a a church consultant who studied uh, thousands of congregations says that if an active person who's involved in the community of faith is out of that for eight weeks, uh, there's about an 80% chance that they will never return unless they intentionally make an effort to come back or unless the community reaches out to them in an intentional way. And this also describes, we just nibble ourselves, uh, this also describes how we get disconnected from God. Very few people wake up one day and say, I no longer believe this. I, ju- I just quit, you know, uh, spiritual life is not, you know, just I'm pushing it out. What happens is um, is is our patterns of personal devotion and prayer kind of fade away. You know, we're in January still, and I don't know how many of you start the year with some kind of New Year's resolution, a, a popular one among many uh, church folks, is this is the year I'm finally going to read the Bible from... The beginning to end from Genesis to Revelation and so they follow some pattern you know four chapters a day or something like that and and boy you know day one uh boy those stories in Genesis are really interesting and 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 you know day seven yes 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 somewhere around uh early February in the middle of Leviticus this starts to lose its charm and uh, start telling ourselves you know no reason to be fanatical about this don't have to do this every day and I uh, don't have to read four chapters, can just read my favorite verse each day. And, and, and what happens is, um, is, uh, is it starts to fade away, just those personal disciplines. And if we're not careful, we find that when we use the word God, we're describing an abstract philosophical principle instead of a personal relationship. How did that happen? We didn't intend it. We just nibble ourselves lost. So the first uh, first kind of lesson from this parable is it is easier than we realize for us to get uh, get lost, to find ourselves lost, and uh, and 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 that's true for every one of us. We are in no position to judge because we've all been there. We are all there at various points in our life, and uh, and so we are like the sheep in this parable with that propensity. Now. Uh, if I sat down now, David, this would be a rather downer of a sermon. We're all lost. Have a good day. <laughs> but there's a but there's a second lesson to this. What Jesus says to those um, grumbling scribes and Pharisees, the religious people, uh, about the, the sheep, uh, he, he tells the story of this shepherd who searches for the one that's lost. And that shepherd is the representation of God's love in Jesus Christ. It is how God regards the lost. So the second lesson is that God's love is a pursuing love. It is a seeking love. It is a searching love. That God loves everyone as if they are the only one that God ever made. God loves, loves us to the ends of the earth. And it doesn't matter where our nibbling has taken us. It doesn't that matter how... Uh, how disconnected we feel how lost we have become there's no such thing as being so lost that god does not want to have a relationship with you and god's love pursues us searches us like that good shepherd's love and so uh i you know i don't know who all we have here but maybe there's someone within the sound of my voice who needs to hear this today that god loves you that god loves you that god loves you And it doesn't matter how disconnected or broken life feels right now, God will never give up on you. God will search you to the ends of the earth because that's in the very nature of God. Some probably 150 years ago, there was a poem written by a a writer named uh, Francis Thompson, and he was uh, wrestling with how to communicate the experience that he'd had in his life. He'd been through various drug and alcohol issues and had come out on the other side by the grace of God uh, reflected in those uh, around him in the community of faith. And it was so transformative that he wrote a poem that goes on for like 187 lines or something. And it's in this stilted Victorian English, but it's called The Hound of Heaven. And what it does is it describes uh, God pursuing him, that pursuing love, like a hound dog pursues its prey. So the first few lines are this. He's running away from God, right? I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinthine ways of my own mind and in the midst of tears and under running laughter from those strong feet that followed, followed after. I told you this was stilted Victorian English, right? How many of you have used the, uh, the word labyrinthine recently in a conversation? It's um, But I love that image, this idea that God's, Love pursues us the way a hound dog pursues its prey. How many of you have ever been chased by law enforcement bloodhounds? <laughs> the choir's all denying it. No. <laughs> I guess I'm the only one. So you know what bloodhounds are. These dogs with way too much skin on their face and and uh, they're, they're known for their keen sense of uh, smell and so... If there's a child that gets lost, they uh, they help find the child. If a, a person breaks free uh, from prison or something, they they they, uh, they follow them. Um, I, I have you ever wondered how they trained those bloodhounds to do that? They use bait, which is what I was when I was about seven or eight years old. Bloodhound bait. Somehow it ended up being good uh, preparation for ministry. I don't. <laughs> so uh when when we were living in sutton county in west texas uh my father was friends of the county judge judge cooper and and he was the keeper and trainer of all the bloodhounds for all the law enforcement agencies in the county and uh and we'd go out on saturdays with judge cooper out uh on the in the middle of one of these west texas ranches now if you've ever been in that part of the country i mean it's just more and more of more and more in every direction and we'd go out in the middle of one of these, we'd be in a pickup truck, and uh, have in the back of the pickup truck some pins with the bloodhounds, uh, three or four dogs, and, uh, and, and when we got out to the middle of this ranch, we'd get out of the car, and uh, my dad and I would have canteens of water, we'd be ready to go, have, and, and what we'd do is we'd have like baseball caps or bandanas or uh, handkerchiefs or something that had our, our smell on them, and we'd leave them with Judge Cooper, and then we'd, then we'd take off. And we would go as far and as fast as we could possibly go. And we would do everything to try and outsmart those dogs. So if there was something to climb up, we climbed up it. If there was some place to climb down, we climbed down it. If there was any water at all, we crossed it. Because, because we wanted to do everything we could to throw off those bloodhounds. But after a while, when we'd be way out there, we'd suddenly hear in the distance, you know, arr, 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 and we'd know. Judge Cooper had let the dogs out of the pins and let them. And what they'd do is he'd, he'd you know, let them sniff the cap or the handkerchief or something. And those dogs would just start howling and run around the truck two or three times and then they'd just all take off together in one direction. And uh, they follow people's scent rather than their their, uh, their tracks or something. So if the wind was blowing this way and we went up this hill and down that draw, We'd think we had them beat because they weren't following us. What they were following is over here, the scent. But every time, no matter what we did, they'd end up turning into the wind and they'd find us. They were trained to stop about uh, 75 feet away or something and it, because in a real-life situation, if they came up to who they were searching for, they might be harmed. So they'd stop and they'd just start howling, until Judge Cooper would come pick us all up. You know why they use bloodhounds instead of some other breed of dog, Blood, um, Dachshunds or something? I don't. Well, that's probably obvious, but <laughs> I, I'm no expert on dogs, but I understand all breeds of dog have the same keen sense of smell. But what's different about bloodhounds is their persistence. That once they get on a scent, they will not stop or give up until they've satisfied themselves that they've found it. What an interesting metaphor for the love of God, that God has your scent, the hound of heaven, <laughs> that, that, that there's nowhere you can go that God can't find you. I fled him down the days and down the nights. I fled him down the arches of years. Some of, of the years, some of us have been lost or nibbling our way lost for a long, long time. I fled him down the labyrinthine ways of my own mind. Some of this, the justifications and explanations. And, and in the midst of tears and under running laughter, good times and bad, from those strong feet that followed, followed after. God loves us with an everlasting love. God never gives up on any one of us. God desires to have a relationship with us. And, uh, and, and that's the second truth of this parable. And so now I could sit down and we'd feel a little better about things. But there's a third point. And I actually think it was the most important one that Jesus was getting at. He's talking to the religious people who are complaining about Jesus' focus on those people out there, right? The the lost. And, And what he's communicating to them is the shepherd is like God's love. That's the representation of that in this parable. And he said, instead... If you wanted to do the Good Shepherd's work, if you wanted a relationship with a Good Shepherd, instead of grumbling about this, you would be doing the Good Shepherd's work. You would be searching for the lost. Friends, it falls on us as we belong to a community of Christ. It falls on us this responsibility to care about those who have never had the blessings of a relationship with Christ. It falls on us to be concerned about those who uh, who, who by whatever means find themselves disconnected and in a broken situation and so it, it ought to weigh on us and and cause us to you know uh, multiply ministries that 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 help those that are going through a period of brokenness such as alcoholism or addiction of some sort. and just how do we how do we, how do we surround them with God's love and let them know that they are loved to the ends of the earth and 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 those folks where there's family attentions uh, you know how do we how do we support couples how do we support families and and children, and, and parenting, and how do we do things that strengthen those relationships? And, 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 and we ought to challenge each other. You know, some of us, some of us have brokenness that, uh, you know, some of us have a brother or sister that we haven't talked to for 30 years, and we don't even remember why we haven't talked to them for 30 years. We forget what the issue is. And friends, we don't have all the time in the world. Who's going to take the first step? Who's going to pick up the phone and say, I've been thinking about you? It ought to weigh on us when there are people who used to sit in front of us in in the pew, uh, or used to be in our Bible study class, and they've just kind of not been there for some time. Are we just going to wait for them to come to their senses and come back, or are we going to give them a call, say we've missed you, we love you, and and then it ought to weigh on us that even here in San Antonio, 50% of the people who live around us, who who sit in front of us, you know, at the football game or at the sit behind us at the basketball game or beside us at the band concert, 50% do not have a faith community, do not have a, a place to regularly discuss and share and learn and grow in the spiritual life. This story is about God's grace. When we use the word grace of God, we mean about the same thing as what love of God means. Like I mean, Grace of God, love of God mean the same thing pretty much. But when we use the word grace, we're highlighting in particular the unearned, unachieved uh, quality of that love, the gift-like quality of that love, that it doesn't matter uh, how old, how young, doesn't matter our ethnicity or language, doesn't matter our nationality, doesn't matter uh, where we are in in any kind of spectrum, God loves us, God's grace extends to us. And then the second uh, part of God's grace, why grace of God, we use that word, is to emphasize the initiating quality of God's love. That it's not passive. Jesus didn't sit in the temple waiting for people to come find him. Uh, his show was on the road. He was in people's homes. He was talking to the woman at the well. He was, he was out there, right? It, it is the grace of God in Jesus Christ that causes him to step into the community of lepers to offer healing even though that was, they were unclean. It was the grace of God in Jesus Christ that causes Him to speak to the woman at the well even though that was a breach of custom. It was the grace of God in Jesus Christ that causes Him to, to uh, call Zacchaeus down, the tax collector, out of the tree and say, I'm going to eat at your house today. And it is the grace of God in Jesus Christ today that causes us to wrap our arms around those who've been the victims of violence in our society. And it's also the grace of God in Jesus Christ that propels us into the prison cells to offer ministry to those who've been the perpetrators of violence in our society. Because God never gives up on any one of us. I love this parable. It is easier than we realize for us to get lost. We just nibble ourselves lost. God loves us with an everlasting love, never gives up on us. And if we're going to do the Good Shepherd's work, we have to be agents of God's reconciling love and seek the lost. Now, you've listened to this sermon from the point of view of a very particular person, 61-year-old, white male, preacher-type person. I want you to hear someone describing the meaning of this parable in a different voice. This is all written and, uh, and presented uh, by and, and produced by the person we're about to see. A uh, 23-year-old young woman. Let's uh, let's watch the video.
2: You found me when the world had put me in a box and labeled me lost. You found me when I was so scared of myself, in too deep to ask for help, too far down to admit. I fell, you found me. When I didn't know what to do, so I left. When I tried to leave behind you, you found me. You found me like the sheep, stupid and stubborn, separated from the others, from the field of faithful followers. You found this shameful daughter, hallowed, you found me hollowed and hidden in the shadows. And of the ninety-nine who were loyal, finding me made you joyful. And so you put me on your shoulders, my beholder, you found me. You find us every morning as the sunlight hits the land. You find us again and you meet us with mercy. You find us at every turn with each misdirection. You find us and you ignore our insurrection and you meet us with resurrection. You find us when we don't even know where we are. We know that you can't be far because you are our here. There is nowhere that you're not near because you find us. Lord, help us find the one still unreached. Help us find the lost and preach to them peace and preach to them hope and mercy and grace. Let us welcome them in and find them a place. Help us to stop driving out the people who doubt with our contrived versions of what you're about, but rather invite them in despite their sin. And We all have sin, we've all been lost. The only difference is that we know the cost. We know what was paid on that cross, and so we must take it up as our cause. We must use it as our fuel, use it as our tool and not as our weapon. It should lead to acceptance and never to oppression. It's called the good news, not the statement to the hated. Let's put down our pickets and stop writing tickets without proper authority. We have But one priority in that is to love. Lord, help us love the lost until they're found.
1: Lord, help us love the lost until they're found. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.